Thank you for listening to this audio recording from the pastoral team at Church of the Redeemer, an Anglican church in Greensboro, North Carolina. If you'd like to know more about Church of the Redeemer, its ministry, or its mission, then visit us online at RedeemerGSO.org. Lord, we need you this morning. We're coming to you from all different kinds of situations and places. We pray that you'd meet us where we are and speak a word that would change us and send us out to live and to love like you. Amen. This morning, we're going to look together at our gospel reading uh, that we just heard from Luke chapter 10. And if you grew up in the church, you've probably heard this passage at least five trillion times. Um, It's one of Jesus' most famous parables or teaching stories, the parable of the Good Samaritan. And for those of you who are here today who are either newer to the faith or maybe who wouldn't consider yourselves Christians, um, first of all, we're extremely thankful that you're here. Um, Don't hesitate to grab me or any of our clergy after the service and grill us or ask us any questions that you have. Um, But second, if this is the first time you've heard this, I'm, I'm excited for you to get to hear this short but profound story that Jesus told for the first time. And regardless of whether this is your first or 500th time looking at the story, the parable of the Good Samaritan, I hope that this morning you'll listen to it expecting to be surprised and challenged afresh. Because I think there are some parts to this story that we often miss. And ultimately, it's the parts that are the most easy to understand that are the most challenging of all. So to give you a sense of where we're going this morning, we're going to see a picture, I think, of eternal life that might be bigger than we usually would hope. And we'll find a call to cross-shaped compassion that our society desperately needs. So I invite you to go and turn with me um, in your Bible to Luke chapter 10 if you have one. Um, If you don't, there's pew Bibles in some of the pockets of the chairs in front of you. If you don't have a Bible, feel free to take that with you. That can be yours, um, our gift to you. Um, If you don't know where Luke is, there is a table of contents in the front that can help you get there. Uh, But as you're turning, uh, I'm going to give you a little bit of context for the passage that we're jumping into today. At this point in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 10, Jesus has left his home region of Galilee where he started off his ministry. He's left that behind, and he's now slowly traveling towards Jerusalem, the capital of the Jewish world, where the temple of God's presence and where all of the most important and influential Jewish leaders were. But as he's traveling, he's continuing to do the things that have marked his ministry up until now. He's preaching and teaching about life in God's kingdom. He's displaying the kingdom through miraculous healings, and he's training his disciples, preparing them to go out and to continue his mission when he's gone. Some of his teachings and healings, though, have riled up the religious establishment. They're suspicious that he might be a little bit soft on the Jewish law, maybe even morally loose. They've been calling him a drunkard and a glutton, a friend of traitors and sinners. And so in verse 25, our passage starts with a lawyer that is an Old Testament law expert, the law of Moses expert. He comes up to Jesus, interrupting a conversation that he was having with his disciples, and asks some questions for him to test him. Starting in verse 25 of Luke chapter 10. Behold, a lawyer stood up to put Jesus to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? 
This religious legal expert, he's wanting to test Jesus on his orthodoxy. He's feeling him out to see if he's a heretic. Or maybe he actually does want to see if Jesus is the kind of teacher that he could follow. But either way, to test him, he asks what seems like a simple question. Teacher, what do I need to do to inherit eternal life? But I actually need to pause here, because I think when we hear this, what we may assume he's asking is, how do I go to heaven when I die? But the original Hebrew and Greek phrases that get translated eternal life in our Bibles in English actually literally means the life of the age. That is the life of the age to come. See, the Old Testament, which was the Bible for Jesus and those of his day, the Old Testament was filled with the expectation that one day God would come in power and in glory to set all things right, to resurrect the dead, vindicate the oppressed, reward the faithful, destroy evil, and restore everything that's broken, ushering in a new age of life that is liberated from sin and death, the life of the age. That was the hope of the Old Testament. And this is what Jesus in his ministry called the kingdom of God, or the kingdom of heaven. It was the main theme of his teaching. He was teaching all about eternal life, or life of the age, or life of the kingdom. He's teaching about what it looks like, and about how we share in that kind of life. And so when this lawyer, this Bible teacher, comes to Jesus to ask him how to inherit eternal life, what he's asking is, how do I make sure that I will be judged righteous and rewarded when God brings this new kingdom. And as a teacher of the law, what he probably already thought the right answer was, well, you need to know and obey the law of Moses. That's how. And he's testing to see if Jesus is maybe watering this down or is teaching some other unorthodox way to enter the kingdom. But look at Jesus' response in verse 26. Jesus said to him, what is written in the law? How do you read it? It's a classic Jesus move, right? Answer a question with a question. Turn the question back on the questioner. And at this point, the guy probably should have said, like, no, I asked you first. You need to actually answer my question. But like many Bible teachers, seems like he can't help himself but share his profound wisdom and knowledge. And so he takes the bait and he answers. Verse 27, he answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. He's actually quoting two passages from the Old Testament, Deuteronomy 6.5 and Leviticus 19.18. But if this answer sounds familiar to you, it's probably because this is exactly what Jesus taught was the heart of the Old Testament law, right? This is what Jesus taught. Love God with everything you've got, and love your neighbor as much as yourself. And I don't know if the lawyer was expecting a fight or another sneaky question, but Jesus responds bluntly. Verse 28, he says, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. I find his answer here really interesting for a few reasons. I mean, first of all, I just still think it's kind of funny that the guy who came to test Jesus ends up getting his own theology graded by Jesus. Tables totally turned on him. But second, I find this amazing because I'm pretty sure this is the only place in the Gospels where someone comes to Jesus and Jesus tells them, yep, you've got it all straight. You're good. You've got it right. Period. 
The end. No catch. No, you lack one thing. Just go sell everything you have or nothing. That's it. Seems clear and simple. And yet, I think especially for us Protestants, something about this might bug us, right? Because this guy asks, what do I need to do to inherit eternal life? Shouldn't Jesus have said something like, do? You don't have to do anything. Just have faith. Just believe, right? But instead, he says, do this. Obey the greatest commandments that sum up the law, and you will live. Is Jesus teaching some kind of works salvation or works righteousness? What's, what's he doing here? Well, hold on to that question because we're going to come back to it. Because the conversation doesn't end there. Something's bugging the lawyer too. And so he goes on with another question. Verse 29, it says that, But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Who is my neighbor? See, he's heard about the kind of people that Jesus spends his time with. He's probably heard that Jesus just passed through Samaria, the home of a people that most Jews viewed as religiously and ethnically inferior, heretics and half-breeds. Surely Jesus would not tell someone that they have to love people like that to live. The lawyer wants to get more specific because he wants to make sure that he's got his boxes checked so that he will be justified and rewarded, counted as righteous in the age to come. But instead of answering his question directly, he got his one clear answer, and no more of that. Instead of answering him directly, Jesus responds, as he often did, by telling a story. And we kind of take these for granted now, but, but why? Why tell a story? What do stories do? Well, I think it's because the Bible scholar is looking for quick answers, for a truth that he can memorize and possess, put in his pocket. He wants a soundbite. He wants an answer, a box with clear borders that he can check and move on. But a story doesn't work that way, right? A story is not an equation that you can just solve and move on and forget about. A story draws you in. It asks something of you. It demands participation. And it brings us not into possession of the truth, but into a living relationship with the truth. And so let's look at this story finally together that Jesus tells, the parable of the Good Samaritan, starting in verse 30. Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers, who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. So Jesus sets the scene with a man traveling down the road from Jerusalem to Jericho. And I actually have a picture of what this looks like today, I think. Yes, there it is. That's what it looks like. It's pretty intense terrain, right? It's very steep. It's very rocky. There's lots of places for bandits to like hide behind rocks and pop out and scare you. If this were Star Wars, this is the place where you would get attacked by the sand people for sure. Um, and incidentally, this is also the road that Jesus would eventually travel up to enter into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. Um, and so, going down this road, sure enough, the man is jumped, robbed, stripped naked, beaten nearly to death, and left to die. Let's keep going. Verse 31. 
Now by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. So we get two religious experts, two religious leaders, similar to this lawyer. And they're probably on their way home to Jericho after spending a week-long shift serving in the temple in Jerusalem. And they each see this bleeding, naked man, and they keep their distance. Jesus doesn't tell us why exactly. They simply do. I mean, maybe they were worried for their own safety. Obviously, there are dangerous people around. Maybe the guy was even left there as bait so the bandits could rob more people. Who knows? Or maybe they were just hot and tired and they wanted to get home to their families after a long week at work and just couldn't bother the time, the energy, the effort, the trouble, the resources that helping this guy would require. But regardless, each of these holy men comes and sees the wounded man, and they ask themselves the question, is this guy my neighbor? And they decide the answer is no. So let's keep going. Verse 33. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where the injured man was. And when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. So after the two religious leaders pass by, a Samaritan comes along, probably a merchant, a person who would have been seen by the priests and by Jesus' lawyer friends as a dirty sinner and ethnic outsider. And yet, he does what the Jewish leaders did not. He sees the bleeding man, has compassion for him, and he acts. And he acts lavishly. He goes above and beyond to tend to this poor man with detailed, hands-on care, binding wounds, pouring out oil and wine over him that might have been goods that he was meant to sell, giving the man his animal, traveling on foot himself, and taking him to an inn to recover, paying for a two-week stay up front, and giving the inn over a blank check to do whatever else he needed to with. This is over-the-top, unexpected, unrequired, extravagant, and beautiful care. And so having told this brief tale, Jesus asks his Bible expert friend in verse 36, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? And he said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. You go and do likewise. See, Jesus rejects the lawyer's question entirely about who counts as a neighbor. Because, let's be honest, he was not actually asking, you know, who should I show love to? What he's asking is, who do I not need to show love to? Right? Who do I not need to see as my neighbor? And so instead of defining his neighbor for him, Jesus flips the question around and challenges him to become a neighbor to whoever it is he might meet who's in need. He changes neighbor from a noun to a verb. And the lawyer gets it. It's not hard to understand. He knows who in the story he's supposed to imitate. 
And he can't quite bring himself to name that it was the Samaritan who fulfilled the Jewish law in this story, but he does rightly name his defining characteristic, that he was the one who showed mercy. And so Jesus commands him, you go and do likewise. So what do we do with all this today? I want to circle back around to this question that we raised earlier about whether Jesus is teaching salvation through our own effort and works. Because remember, this conversation, we often forget about the context. The conversation with this parable shows up is one about how to inherit eternal life. And I imagine that for some of us, especially those from evangelical Protestant backgrounds, the fact that Jesus concludes upon how to inherit eternal life with the command, go and do, makes us uncomfortable. You know, I thought we were saved by grace through faith. Is Jesus telling us to earn our salvation? What's going on? And I want to tackle this head on, because if we don't, then we cannot hear Jesus' words here with any kind of seriousness. We either have to say that, well, he didn't really mean that you have to love your neighbor to enter the kingdom of God. You don't really have to love your neighbor to inherit eternal life. Or we have to do some kind of convoluted gymnastics to say, well, Jesus didn't really expect any of his commands to actually be obeyed. He just gave them to us to show us how sinful we are, so we'd put our faith in him. But I think, like the lawyer in the passage, we need to have the way that we're thinking about these things reframed. See, the lawyer had what I like to call a vending machine model for salvation. Right? He wanted to know what coins he needed to put in so that he'd get his candy bar for eternity. He wanted to know the exact change, so he didn't obviously come up short a penny and not get to inherit eternal life, but he also didn't want to accidentally put in an extra penny that he didn't have to either. But I think, we can make fun of him, but I think many of us today treat the Christian faith in the exact same way. Our primary question is, what do I need to do to go to heaven when I die? You know, and maybe it's instead of obeying the Mosaic law, like this man saying, maybe it's, well, I need to pray a certain prayer or have certain feelings about Jesus, but it functions the same way. It's still an outlook that is about me. It's self-focused, and it views eternal life as a thing to get, as a possession for myself one day. But look what Jesus did when he told this parable. He turned the attention of the Bible expert away from himself and his own trying to figure out and analyze his own life. He turned his attention away from himself and onto the merciful activity of the Samaritan. And then he invited him to join in it. He invited him to reimagine what eternal life is really about. And so this is what I want you to see about this. That Jesus shows us in this passage that eternal life is not just something to get in the future. It is an invitation to share in the life of the Father starting now. In the Gospel of John, Jesus gives us a short definition of what he means when he says eternal life. John 17.3 says, This is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you've sent. See, for Jesus, eternal life isn't primarily about having life after death, although it does include that. Don't hear me wrong. It certainly includes that. But more fundamentally, 
Jesus says that eternal life, life in the kingdom, life of the age, is about being connected to God through himself. Eternal life isn't just life that goes on forever. It isn't just quantitative. It's a kind of life. It's about sharing in God's own life. It's it's qualitative and relational. And this was the radical thing that Jesus claimed in his teaching and in his ministry, that the life of the age to come was actually available now in and through him. And last week, Jared preached and talked about how we're called as the church to be a foretaste of shalom or the peace of new creation, the peace of the age to come. We're called to be a foretaste of that together. We're called to live the eternal kind of life, God-connected kingdom life together as we share in Christ's life. And as we do so, people might just get a whiff of eternity. So, no, Jesus is not saying hear me right, that we need to earn our salvation or work our way into God's good graces. We don't morally achieve our union with God. But he's saying that we are graciously invited to be united with him in the loving light of God's own presence. We are graciously invited to receive the love of the Father and be transformed by it so that we are made like him and that we can share that love with the world. And in the parable of the Good Samaritan, we discover that a central part of sharing in God's life is sharing in his compassion and mercy. At the very center of this passage, the pivot moment of the parable is when the Samaritan sees the wounded man and has compassion. The Greek word is maybe my favorite one. It's very fun to say. Splonknizomai, right? That's, That's a great one. Um, but it actually comes from the word meaning intestines or entrails, right? So you say, it wasn't that the Samaritan saw the man and thought, it would be good and proper to help this man. No, he saw the man bleeding on the side of the road, and he was gut-wrenched. He felt it, and he was moved to act. And every other time that this word gets used in the New Testament, it's describing the response of Jesus, to other people, to people in need. It's what Jesus feels when he sees the crowds that are like sheep without a shepherd, when he sees a blind man or a leper, when he sees a boy possessed by a demon, when he sees a widow who just lost her only son. This isn't a coincidence. When we look closer at this story, we see that the Samaritan doesn't just do neighborly deeds. He has a neighborly heart. He fulfills the command to love his neighbor in action because his heart is shaped like Christ's heart. In the parable, he risks his life, right, to save a half-dead man. He sacrifices his possessions, his money, his time. He gives himself away for the life of one in need. This is the heart of Christ toward you and me, right? Jesus did more than just risk his life. In the ultimate act of compassion, he gave his life for us fully, on the cross. The cross is the shape of the compassion of God. And so the cross is the shape of the kind of neighbor love that Christ calls us to. He calls us out of the dead-end street of self-preservation to experience the open fields of his own life as we give ourselves away for others. 
He calls us out of a measured compassion dispensed to those that we deem worthy and into an extravagant love that's looking for a place to pour itself out. He calls us away from our endless obsession with our own rights to instead focus on our shared obligations to one another. And our world needs this kind of neighbor love desperately, in too many ways to name. But part of the force of this parable is that it isn't abstract. I mean, Jesus didn't just say, go love everybody, the end. Right? No, it is specific. The Samaritan is called to love a specific man in a specific place with a face, a name, with a specific need. And so, at risk of stepping on some toes, I just want to name one specific place that I think that we need to hear this call to cross-shape to neighbor love today, maybe as much as anywhere. And that's in our debates around abortion. I mean, there are obviously a lot of complex questions involved that I'm not going to even try to tackle today, but I don't think it is too much of a stretch to call these debates a very loud form of the question, who is my neighbor? Or more honestly, who is not? Who do we not have to love? Who do we not have an obligation to? Do we really have an obligation to an unborn child? Or on the other side, do we really have an obligation to a pregnant teenager living in poverty? To a single mom working three jobs trying to put food on the table? See, both sides try to wipe their hands of responsibility for somebody. But the call of Christ doesn't allow that. We cannot have compassion for one and not the other. The eternal kind of life means sharing in God's love that does not set limits on compassion. And we have a responsibility right now as the church to be the Samaritan, to offer radical neighbor love to women and children in need. But let's be clear, going and doing likewise, embracing this kind of cross-shaped neighbor love is really hard, right? I mean, my heart often wants nothing to do with it. I mean, like many of you, especially these last couple of years, I've spent a lot of time in self-preservation mode. I'm just too tired to help. I've got too much stuff going on. And so what do we do when we come to situations where it just feels like our compassion has run out? We have compassion fatigue, right? Well, the answer is not to grit our teeth and just try harder, okay? That is the path to bitterness and resentment. The answer is to look at our God hanging on the cross, whose guts are moved and whose hands are pierced with compassion for you, and to entrust your life to the one whose love is stronger than death, who can preserve you, to entrust your life to him. And as we receive the neighborly compassion of the Father, and as we accept Jesus' invitation to share in his own life, our hearts will begin to look more like his. You know, I'd wager that the man that the Samaritan saved in this parable, he probably went on to be a pretty good neighbor to other people after he'd recovered because of the transformative compassion that he had received. And when you and I understand how much more we have received from Christ, then we can hear the call 
to go and do likewise, not as a burden, but as an opportunity to know the only true God and Jesus Christ whom he has sent. Because that is eternal life. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.